Changes in religious beliefs tend to uh, happen over time, but when they don't, when they come on quickly, you know, we're going to find a catalyst of some sort. You know, like somebody rising from the dead, that'll do it. Um, you know, but obviously a personal encounter with Yeshua, uh, or you may call him Jesus, on the way to persecute believers in Damascus in the case of Paul was something like that. Uh, when I got saved, it was because Yahweh was just invading my every waking moment with his presence for like four long grueling days and forcing me to deal with him. And when I wanted to become a Jew, he directed me to Jesus instead. Abraham was called directly by Yahweh out of the paganism of his family. Genesis 6 says that Noah found favor with Yahweh. And only sometime later was he labeled as a righteous man. And that's how it is with us, right? We have no righteousness of our own. And we're often a hot mess when Yahweh, you know, determines to have our allegiance. And you can take it from me personally. He doesn't much care to take no for an answer, although I suppose he will after a while. I just, I couldn't hold out. Now, we often desire to make the case that Yahweh calls otherwise righteous people, but that doesn't seem to follow the general pattern of Scripture. He calls us in spite of ourselves, and, and that understanding is very important. There are um, religious changes that, that occur as we grow, all right? You know, often we will start out legalistic and zealous as all get out, not really knowing much of anything, but making up for it by really being passionate about the things, you know, that we regret in time. And as we develop in a relationship with Yahweh, our zeal for doctrines transforms or hopefully um, into a passionate love for Yahweh and others, which sometimes puts us into opposition with our previously held views. And this is how wisdom works. We begin as fools and we get wiser. And then we get foolish about a new thing and hopefully we gain some wisdom and, and then we keep doing it and hopefully our foolishness gets milder and briefer as we grow, you know, um, some folks seem to only get worse, but it's like the wash, rinse, and repeat of the shampoo bottle. Of course, they just want to make money, whereas, you know, in theory, it just each washing makes your hair cleaner. <laughs> now, another cause of radical change comes about within the Hebrew Roots Movement and Messianic Judaism when someone gets taken, um, taken in uh, with anti-missionary propaganda. Now, what do I mean by an anti-missionary? Because sometimes I say that word and I don't explain it. And then somebody says, well, what's that? And I'm going, well, that would have been a good thing to explain. Um, I mean, former believers who used to be quite sold out on Yeshua. Uh, and I even know of one college professor who teaches textual criticism, who makes a lot more money now turning people away from Jesus. But these were people who were, by all outward appearances, true believers with compelling testimonies and the works to go along with it, who, you know, for whatever reason, listened to someone who gave them reasons not to believe, and they forgot everything they knew experientially and tossed our Lord to the curb in order to become traditional Jews. 
And um, the interesting thing is, well, one of the interesting things is what happens in the aftermath of this and how it relates to gender and even marital status of all things. And if you want to know my testimony about how they almost got me, I, I'm going to link that in the uh, in the transcript because I did a show on that once. Um, hi, anyway, uh, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah, if you prefer written material. I have six years worth of blogs at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All right, now, this anti-missionary stuff, it happens two times of the year when the anti-missionaries actually actively go hunting, although some of them have made it their lives work. But it definitely follows a cycle. And, and I'm actually not talking about the Jewish anti-missionaries. I have yet to see them really care about converting Gentiles away from Jesus. It just isn't on their agenda. They don't care. I'm talking about the former believers in Yeshua. Those from the Hebrew Roots Movement and Messianic Judaism who have fallen away and become really, really useful pawns in all this, of this toward, you know, the larger goal of preserving Torah for the Jews only and to eliminate the witness of Yeshua followers, keeping the feast and kosher and all of that. But the wrecking of our faith isn't the goal. It's the return of Jews to traditional Judaism. That's their goal. Former Hebrew rooters and uh, Messianic Jews are just useful to them, Okay. But they never really seem to be accepted in any real way into the flock unless they become full-blown, converted, conservative, or orthodox Jews. So in my experience, it happens like this. And if you want to listen to my testimony from this couple of years ago, like I said, I, I'm going to link that in the transcript of my blog. Um, regardless of gender, it goes like this. Someone gets to them and, you know, they end up denying, but... They won't come out and announce it like they did when they got saved in the first place. And that's the first red flag for anyone thinking that this is a genuine, God-driven correction and belief. Instead, they quietly begin with the talking points, quoting certain scriptures out of their scriptural and historical context, knowing that the body in its current state is influenced too strongly by memory verses and will not bother to do the hard work of learning what the verses meant to the original audience. Taken as these like secluded islands, almost like magical spells, all right, they indeed make it sound like Yeshua couldn't possibly be the Messiah. 
and the people reading them each day as they go by on the news feed or in casual conversation will, you know, a seed is planted. And a bunch of seeds get planted and all of a sudden people are paying so much attention to their manipulated doubts that they can't even begin to think straight anymore. All right. Frustration, fear set in because the people, the person doing it hasn't been honest about their intentions. And so the listeners or the reader's guard was never up and they went in unprepared. These were friends who did this. It's very much like the seduction of a virgin who, before she knows it, is being violated. All right. People deserve to know what we are striving to teach and impart ahead of time. If it's of God, we can be honest and upfront about it. You know, I always tell you guys what I'm going to teach you, right? Um, I'm reminded that Yahweh, all right, through the prophets and Yeshua only taught in parables in order to obscure and prevent conversion, not in order to trick anyone into it. Allegiance, which is what our covenant relationship is primarily based on, whether, you know, Sinai covenant or the covenant of the cross or, or both, requires conformed consent. Informed consent. Conformed consent. <laughs> now, when Yahweh was overpowering me with his presence before my conversion, he came at me impressing upon me exactly what he wanted from me. He didn't want a casual acceptance of his existence. I'd known he was real for over a decade at that point. All right. I was like 29 years old. Um, and that was never in question. The question was, was I willing to be loyal to him and accept him as God on his own terms? And he made it very clear to me that his terms included Jesus as my master and I needed to believe him. Now, this wasn't anything I sought out and, you know, quite the contrary. This was unwelcome and unwanted, but there wasn't an ounce of deception involved. He knew what he was demanding from me, and so did I, which is why I fought so hard. And it's really very funny now in retrospect, you know, like I thought I could do better on my own, or I thought if there is a God, he doesn't deserve my attention. <laughs> Actually, to tell you the truth, if he was who I thought he was at that point, then probably he didn't deserve my worship, but I had a lot of wrong ideas. That's why he had to be so insistent. And by the time these people are in full-fledged crisis, they're often too emotionally wounded with embarrassment at having missed all this, quote-unquote, scriptural evidence that they've been deceived. You know, um, they've been... And they can't be reasoned with, okay? And I see this a lot. Um, on a lot of issues, the whole fictional two Babylons and fossilized customs propaganda sounded so outrageous and convincing that no one thinks anyone would have the audacity to make it up, and so nobody does the research to fact check it. They just pass it on. Well, except I did. By accident! And I was horrified at how much my life had been manipulated by absolute nonsense claims that had no archaeological mythological, or even logical backing whatsoever once they were actually looked into. I'd been duped by deception and manipulated into false outrage that left me absolutely vulnerable to believe a whole lot more nonsense that went along with it. 
just as long as it was telling me that a certain crowd was absolutely deceived about everything. And thankfully, you know, I started studying. Thank you, God. But most people can't or don't know how to or don't have the time or money or even the desire to do it themselves. And, you know, that's fine. Unless we're going to teach something's true and then we have an obligation to make sure it's true. But if you're just Joe Blow, you don't need to be a scholar, okay? And I'm not a scholar. I just play one on the radio. I just read books by actual scholars. And I'm talking about this now because we're in the dire straits this week. Starting this week from the 17th of Tammuz, which is June 29th this year, to the 9th of Av when things heat up spiritually and people get nutty and the anti-missionaries get feisty and people start falling away. And it'll go until Sukkot. All right. And it happens again before Passover. But what happened to people after they fall away and happens, sorry, what happens to people after they fall away and how is it gender driven? Well, at first, the same thing happens to both groups. Embarrassment drives them to seek out relief in being right and being part of the religion that they believe has rescued them from being quote-unquote idolaters, because that's part of the propaganda. So they tend to convert either whole hog or half-heartedly to Judaism. And men are more likely to convert to conservative forms of Judaism and women to liberal forms. Sometimes after being more conservative for a while and not finding it at all to their liking. Often has to do with whether the women are married and if their husbands have also denied. Um, but their personalities change and often radically. And I have seen incredibly patient and loving women become monsters and liars. All right. And they don't see it. They believe they're the same. They don't see the contempt and the anger and the manipulation that they're resorting to. They just feel that they've been freed from deception and are on a crusade where, you know, the ends justify the means. You know, at least, you know, and some are open and honest about their new beliefs and their, their, but they don't have much, they don't have much success in converting people when they do. Now, some go for a long time before admitting having fallen away, okay? And I wonder if they're told that they need to be secretive so that they won't be persecuted, but then are trained to indoctrinate others quietly and casually. Because they, like, almost all do the same thing, and once you've seen it happen, um, it becomes obvious. You know, you know, is there some sort of training manual? Okay, <laughs> Inquiring minds want to know. But what happens to them after they deny, you know, as I said, it often has a lot more to do with gender than anything else. You've got to fill that space where the Holy Spirit once was. And so what that looks like, what will satisfy that is going to look different from person to person. Men generally respond by retreating into tradition, which makes more conservative and orthodox expressions of Judaism very attractive for them. You know, as men, the system favors them more than it does women coming to it from the outside. Um, they have new identities that are very male-affirming, prayers where they thank God that they were not born women, uh, cultural markers like tzitzit, and like thousands of years worth of new traditions to feel part of, well, new to them, okay? Which is also going to come into play with how women handle this ongoing transition, but we'll talk about that later. 
men making this change get a lot more support and respect than women do. And when they dive into the Torah and the Talmud, they find very little there that demeans them as males and a whole lot propping up their egos. Now, out from under the really hard take-no-prisoners-on-your-inner-life teachings of Yeshua, um, they're not required to forgive preemptively anymore, which is a real sticking point of contention between many Jews and Christians. Turning the other cheek is gone. Blessing those who curse and persecute you, poof. You know, it's gone. And they can be replaced with rituals and tradition, which are a whole lot easier than the hard work of heart reform. And they allow for a lot more pride to foster. Because frankly, when people haven't been raised within the culture of Judaism, what they do with it is often really off base and off track and not what Jews do with it. How do I put this? Well, when you aren't raised within the mindset of Judaism or, or anything, really, you see all the forms but not the function and you miss the spirit of it. And so people who deny Yeshua and become Jews are often Jews in name only. Because that was what was left. You know, that's what they're left with when they denied Yeshua. They weren't pagans on the outskirts who were drawn to Judaism because they saw something in it that was excellent. No, this became their default decision after rejecting the back of the book. And this works out for men more successfully than it does for women. Okay, I'm going to be honest. And if you think this is just me, no, my Jewish friends notice this too. That Judaism as a default position to being Hebrew roots or Messianic, unless they started out Jewish in the first place, is a recipe for disaster and especially for women. Because Judaism isn't just a religion. It's a culture. It's a people. It isn't anything like following Yeshua in some ways, all right? Judaism looks pretty much the same regardless of what culture you find it in. But following Yeshua can be very different here in the States than it is in Africa or Asia, okay? And I think that's a positive thing, personally. All nations, peoples, and tongues worshiping before the throne, that's what it looks like. Different cultures, different music, but one master and one Lord. But when people who have known salvation, when they deny Yeshua and become Jews because they see that the Bible is truth and see it as their only alternative, that's not the same thing as choosing to become Jewish. That's treating Judaism like some kind of consolation prize. And for couples who are attracted to that way of life, they can find enjoyment in it, okay? But for single men, there can be real problems, and for single women, it could be worse. Single men, unless they want to go full-blown conversion, which a lot do not want to do, they just want to play at Judaism. You know, they find themselves second-class citizens. You know, something that does not exist in the followers of Yeshua, or at least it shouldn't. We know it does, okay? Um, we're told no male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. Obviously, we believe that. Hopefully, we act like it's true. Um, well, obviously, obviously we say we believe it, okay? Not everyone does, okay? 
But those who lodge themselves halfway between what it looks like to follow Yeshua and full-blown Judaism, they end up with people without any kind of home, except with one another. And that's why I think they make such a, an attempt to recruit others. People who already felt lonely in the Hebrew Roots movement or as Messianics and who are needing an identity, having given up identity in Messiah, they tend to become more so, more lonely. They now believe that Yeshua followers are idolaters, so they can't go back and worship with them. Um, and the uh, online personalities associated with their newfound beliefs are generally angry and spend a lot of their time insulting Yeshua followers. And of course, they stop calling him Yeshua. They use Jesus now, which is a second red flag. People who spent so much time online harping on the name Jesus now only want to use the name Jesus? Why can't they bear to say the name Yeshua? That should really concern anyone wanting to consider what it is they're talking about. If they can't be honest anymore, okay? If they can't use the name they know is correct? Why is that? Good question. Are they actively lying or being insulting? Or can they just not bear to say his name anymore now that they've denied him and betrayed him and frankly pretending like they came to all the faith in the first place through someone else beside him, like they did it himself or God um, used a lie to get them to him. Doesn't really sound right. Sounds kind of not kosher. And so you get, you know, people on the fringes wanting to be Jews, but not really wanting to be Jews. They want to call themselves Jews, but they really just want what's left over from the Bible after they take Yeshua out of it. You know, it's something to cling to. And some actively avoid the Bible after that and immerse themselves in Talmudic and Midrashic teachings. So much so that they get in trouble there too. Not understanding how Jews use these writings. I have seen people not understand the first thing about how to use legendary materials and go off the deep end. Not understanding um, when they have massively diverted from scripture and thinking that somehow this is commentary that draws only from the text instead of what if stories, which is how the Jews understand them. They start getting treated as divinely inspired. Yeah, I had this guy come on my wall back in February after the whole Stuart Allen Clark fiasco back last winter when we were talking about the double standards for men and women, um, how women aren't allowed to put on weight and get older, but, you know, men are. <laughs> you know? And um, we were talking about how Bathsheba and how the text describes her as innocent and only David is guilty. And he comes on with both guns blazing. About how when she came over, she was all perfumed and wearing jewelry and all prepared to seduce him. Is that in the text? No, not even close. But the problem was that he had so immersed himself in the Midrashic literature that he had lost touch with the text. And he's one of these people I suspect has denied but hasn't admitted it yet. Um, he is no longer allowed to comment on my wall, though. Um, 
Instead of reading it as a what-if story, he was presuming that everything written by the rabbis is divinely inspired, or at least not departing from the text. And he didn't know the Bible well enough to know when to... um. Oh, no, what is it? Is, is, is it when it... Cry foul. There we go. He didn't know enough about the Bible to know when to cry foul. He was so invested in um, these really interesting stories. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that they're really interesting because they are really interesting. And these guys got creative and sometimes they got ridiculous. Sometimes they outright whitewash some really heinous stuff like, you know, David wasn't really doing anything wrong because Uriah had handed Bathsheba a conditional divorce just in case, you know, and why she would need such a thing and nothing existed like that in the ancient world. But, you know, anything to get David to not be sinning. Anyway, we'll be back in a few minutes. Tyler and not Miss Cheese. That's what happens when I'm recording for two different radio shows. This is Tyler Don Rosenquist and welcome back to the second half of this week's character and context on um, really on gender identity religion. And I'm using um, the anti-missionaries and the damage they do as kind of segue into talking about male and female identified religion and the pitfalls of that because, you know, there's supposed to be no male or female in Christ and just got done, I mean, not done talking about how men tend to glom on to Judaism and the, the Midrashic and the Talmudic writings, but a lot of times they just, they take them too seriously. They don't read them as Jews do, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when you're taking these Midrashic and um, legendary materials seriously, because, you know, the Talmud does have some some of that in it, even though it's mostly legal arguments. But um, that's not how people who are raised within Judaism view these kind of writings. Um, they inject these what-if stories in order to teach concepts, not to replace the biblical text. Um, and it's misunderstandings like this that make non-Jews in general a poor fit for conversion. Um, same with a lot of the traditions and rituals of Orthodox Jewish life. They aren't things to be tacked on to a pre-existing life. They are cultural. And to try and understand them otherwise just courts disaster. Um, and like I said, men do better with this than women because... When you're not raised in all this, as a man, there is less objectionable material than there is for women. Much of the rabbinic commentary that comes out of the Middle Ages, in which women, and this is in both Judaism and Christianity, by the way, it's just that was the times. Uh, women were blamed for much of the evils of humanity and for being just flat out objectionable in general. Now, the scriptures don't support this. 
but it was the times and they were what they were. Okay. That's why it's important to never read any sort of commentary or any sort of religion, uh, literature in a vacuum. You need to know when it was written, who wrote it, where they lived, how they lived, what genre it represents, what the historical situation of the time was, how they looked at such literature and opposing viewpoints because Judaism has never been monolithic, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But there's this crazy idea out there that the only thing that ancient Jews were capable of writing was scripture. No, sir. They wrote some brilliant fiction and a lot of it, um, especially um, before the first century during the Hellenistic period after the Persian times. They also wrote a lot of commentary on their times, tying scripture to prophetic fulfillment in their own lives. And if you've read any of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know what I'm talking about. They wrote wisdom sayings, apologetics, histories, polemic, apocalypses, personal letters, um, etc. All of these have to be read differently. Same with all the other, you know, different genres in the Bible. So we should not read an epistle like a gospel or like a wisdom saying or like love poetry or like an apocalypse. In the same vein, we should not read a parable like a history. People do it, though, and they get themselves and others into some real trouble when they do. So where am I going with all this? This affects how men and women react when confronted with this sort of literature. And it affects whether or not they're actually going to convert to Judaism or turn away into something else entirely. For men, Judaism provides camaraderie and a lot of structure that can be very appealing amidst the insanity and chaos of modern society. It can be very comforting to belong to something that is thousands of years old. Although modern Judaism is really as much or more shaped by medieval thinking than mosaic. And by this, I'm talking about a very heavily, heavy reliance on Maimonides or the Rambam, who lived and wrote almost exclusively during the late 12th century. And really, he is the most respected commentator on scripture, period. No one else holds a candle to him, um, with the exception of some Chabad leaders within that sect, historically. Now, Judaism is not all that challenging to men as long as they like scripture. I mean, I'm not saying it's not challenging, but it's not certainly not as challenging as it is to women. All right. As the Bible was written with a within a patriarchal culture where women were considered to be inferiors and Moses's allowances, which Yeshua makes reference to not really approving of, um, they very much prop up that sort of culture. He doesn't outlaw polygyny, even though he owns that co-wives are rivals and not, quote-unquote, sister wives. He doesn't allow women to divorce men, only men to divorce women. Adultery is written of as a crime against other men, uh, another man, um, either a husband, father, or betrothed, and not a crime against a man's own wife. Um... Whereas uh, an adulterous woman was sinning against her husband. Daughters could be sold as wives slash slaves, um, concubines. Women taken in the aftermath of battle if virgins were to be forced into slavery and marriage, depending on the whim of the captors. Otherwise, they were killed uh, if they weren't virgins. 
A foreign woman who is not a virgin was without value. So men are presented with a historical situation that was recorded, and sometimes this gets treated as if it was God's will for this to be normative or universal forever, instead of the reality of the ancient Near Eastern culture that Yahweh was invading and intervening in, to begin to show his people another way. Truly, you know, the Sinaitic Covenant was much better for women than anything else in the region, all right? The laws of the surrounding areas were terrified, but Torah is a starting line and not the finish line. Okay? And, sorry, I put a pen in my mouth. And so, um, when men come to Torah from the outside, and when they have thrown off the interpretations of Yeshua, who tells men unaccustomed, who tells men who are uh, rather accustomed to patriarchy, that he instead expects them to be meek, loving, forgiving, non-retaliatory, non-violent, to forego abusive language and trickery and even hidden hatred and lust that aren't being acted on actively. Um, when he tells men that divorcing their wives for anything other than her unfaithfulness makes them adulterers and that polygyny does as well. And I'll show where he makes that claim uh, next week. Well, devoid of Yeshua and apart from having been raised as a Jew, all right, I've seen this become a recipe for disaster for the wife and kids who um, were not really shown to have much respect or even a place at the table when it comes to the kids, you know, in the ancient world that the Bible tells its stories in the midst of. Remember, the Bible tells us what was going on and not always what should have been going on. Patriarchs lied, <laughs> cheated, and swindled without value judgments assigned their actions. They're just recorded along with whatever consequences happened, if any. The untrained observer, uh, unfamiliar with the ancient Near Eastern context, is left to imagine a God that has little or no love for women. Uh, traditional Jewish men pray this prayer every morning. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not created me a woman. And although modern apologists insist that this is just a means of gratitude that men are obligated to keep more commandments, anyone who spent any time in the medieval traditions knows darn well this is not what they meant. In fact, authors going back to Ben Sirah in the 2nd century BCE have insanely vile things to say about women in keeping with the surrounding culture. Of course, you know, as I often teach, when we look at the trajectory of scriptures, we see God's people moving from things like um, misogyny and slavery being normal and accepted, and again, we'll talk about this next week, to the same thing being incredibly distasteful. You know, no believers today, I don't think, would argue for chattel slavery of the kind we see in Exodus 23 where you can beat your slave to death as long as they live longer than a day, because after all, they are your property. That's a quote. Um, obviously, an allowance of Moses, because we know that slaves are fully human and that no human is to be reduced to property status as they bear the image of God. No one would argue today that slavery is okay simply because Moses never forbade it. Moses himself 
likely was very much at home with the idea of women being inferior, slavery being okay, and men only being accountable to other men, but women and children being accountable to men, and certainly not the other way around. Men weren't accountable to women. Yahweh deals with us where we are. Not just people groups, but as individuals. And although most men these days, and especially men who became believers late in life, are disgusted by misogyny and prejudice, it is more palatable to men who were brought up in churches that promoted it. And it takes a long time for Yahweh to work that out of people, okay? I mean, after 22 years, he has cultural stuff and paradigms that he's dealing with me on too, all right? So I don't take it personally when a man won't listen to me teach or thinks that I should be quiet. I'm not forcing myself on him or arguing with him and, you know, what good would it do? I'm not his God. He doesn't answer to me. I don't hate him or think he's an idiot. I recognize that what we've been taught to accept goes really deep. I trust God to work it out if he so desires. I actually don't think it's the most important issue out there anyway. So letting go of Yeshua and Paul and Peter and James and all that, it just makes it easier and can be somewhat of a relief because the demands of the Sermon on the Mount just never let up. We will never reach perfection. Our righteousness must exceed that of the people who know and outwardly observe the law the best. That is, isn't a game chain, that isn't a game that we can ever win through our own efforts or feel justifiably prideful about. Or is that just me? And maybe that's why so many of these guys just get so abusive and destructive and can't even talk about Yeshua or those who follow him without all the mocking and insults. Because the scriptures are clear. The more we truly walk with him, the less of that we will end up doing and the more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, trusting, gentle, and self-controlled we will become. I mean, when I look at these anti-missionaries who are plaguing the Hebrew roots crowd, I don't see real Jews. Real Jews don't spend any time thinking about Yeshua at all, much less having a vendetta of going after him. Real Jews have a life. You know, Messianic Jews, of course, are the exception because they think about Yeshua as much as we do, obviously. Um, so, I mean, that's the male-identified religion that men who have denied Yeshua tend to glom onto. They go for the more patriarchal modes of thought and the doctrines and the disciplines. But what about women? Well, generally, that doesn't work for women as well. And especially women who are used to being a lot more liberated. Women tend to read the Bible um, a whole, whole lot more than men do. Women are more religious than men in general. You know, we just are. Maybe it's because we have more time on our hands. <laughs> Maybe it's because traditionally we've had to cleave to God more than men have felt the need to. I'm sure there are lots of reasons. Some traditions of Judaism just flat out acknowledge that women are more spiritual than men. That doesn't mean better or superior just that we're different. And I believe in the beginning we were created as flip sides of the same coin in order to perfectly balance one another out as equals. My husband and I see each other as equals and we yield to one another according to our strengths. My husband doesn't need the upper hand. He doesn't need or want to rule over anyone or to have that kind of authority. He needs an equal, not an underling. He thinks that kind of life would be really lonely 
without an equal. And we, we tried it once. It was horrible for both of us. But women, because we're more inclined to read the Bible and supplementary materials for ourselves, women tend to get pretty unhappy pretty quickly with Judaism without Yeshua as the final interpreter of the Torah. A lot of what he did to include women in his ministry and Paul's words about there being no male or female or slave or free in Christ, you know, meaning no hierarchy and the detailed list of female apostles, deacons and such. Well, for most modern women, they find they have lost too much to be happy within Judaism. Added to that, another big problem. It doesn't take them very long to start applying the same criticisms to the Hebrew scriptures that the anti-missionaries applied to the first century writings. And because they aren't looking at the Bible as wisdom literature written within a historical reality, they begin to pick it apart. They notice the rulings that are now untempered by the wisdom of Yeshua. The allowances of Moses are no more considered to be allowances from Moses doing due to hardness of heart, but the very eternal dictates and will of Yahweh is normative forever. They encounter not a God who was intervening in a patriarchal nightmare for their benefit, but one who was not much unlike the pagan gods of the past, determined to love men and keep women subservient and even abused and used. That culture only looked good to women who were comparing it to the reality of the rest of the pre-cross world, all right? And it was better, but Torah never made anything perfect. The Torah contained and limited sin until the coming of Messiah. That's why Paul calls it our tutor, and it's good for that purpose, but we needed the death and resurrection of Yeshua to set us free from bondage, and so that our hearts could be circumcised and God's intentions written on our hearts. His intentions of no oppression, no hierarchies, no hatred, or any of the nasty works of the flesh in Galatians 5. So what are women to do when they find themselves in this dilemma that's incredibly unsatisfying for them? I believe that they begin to long for the love that they had from the bridegroom, but now they believe that the entire Bible is a farce. And yet they generally have enough memory of things that they can't explain without God. And so they go one of two ways or one way and then another. From what I see, um, most women go looking for what I call a more female identified religion. Where traditional Judaism provides the male identification, it doesn't do well for women who were not raised in that culture to accept it as normative. They see it instead as restrictive and even devaluing. And this is what I see from the outside and watching conversations of those who have gone this route, okay? I didn't do a PhD thesis or on this or anything. Um, they want to feel good and valued, and they don't see what traditional Judaism offers as being satisfying. And, and they're rejecting the Bible anyway at this point. So our culture has a lot of women pulling into neo-paganism. Wicca, crystals, laws of attraction, which, you know, not the kind in the physics textbooks, which is what I thought they were referring to the first time it was brought up to me. I <laughs> said the law of attraction, of course. Um, um, but they made, uh, 
It's something where people who don't understand quantum physics, which I got a really high grade in, by the way, and it was my favorite physics class. Actually, it was the only physics class I enjoyed. Uh, I got a really high grade in it, and they, they made some really bad connections based on not having a baseline understanding about how it works, okay? Uh, shamanism, magic-driven naturopathy, and I, I'm not talking about all naturopathic medicine. You know, I'm not calling it all pagan, but you've seen where it crosses the line into being more like magic, okay? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to talk about that actually in two weeks, Um with pharmacia. And it's all very female identified, goddess centered. Um, it's a kinder, gentler religion. And whereas Yahweh is spirit, but metaphorically identified as male in scripture, they can instead trade in all that for a fully realized female nature goddess whom they can just trust to not be traditionally male, which, as I myself can attest to, can be very scary. I know men hate the phrase toxic masculinity, but traditional forms of masculinity were incredibly toxic. Just check out the honor-shame dynamics of Yeshua's day. You know, to be a healthy man is one thing and a good thing, but historically, very few women would want to go back in time, even a hundred years, where there was no such thing as no legal thing as marital rape or spousal abuse or even child abuse. It was just the patriarch's right and during ancient times, he had the right to kill anyone under his roof with impunity. Thank God for Yeshua and the cross and how he changed society and what it means to be a man. But, you know, back to the women who are seeking to get back what they had. Some of them really buy into the whole neo-pagan lifestyle. And the reason it is palatable is because it has nothing in common with ancient paganism. They wouldn't like that. No one from ancient Babylon or Egypt or Greece or any of those places would look at what's being done and recognize anything. Except maybe symbols. That's because neo-paganism is entirely a creation of the last 200 years based on romantic literature, which was originally written to appeal to a more female audience anyway. And romance literature isn't based on historical truths because they weren't big on archaeology but instead on the author's ideas about what a world with magic and magical creatures might have been like. I know a lot of people personally from before I was a believer who live very happily within this system. It affirms them as valuable, gives them a bit of feeling that they can have some control over the chaos of the world, connects them with the spiritual side of life, and makes absolutely no ethical demands of them if they don't want it but it doesn't really offer any sort of true substance. Because of this, women who were formerly followers of Yeshua often find it entertaining until they run out of new and exciting things to learn and do. Then the buzz wears off, and this happens a lot. People follow the knowledge train and take it as far as they can, never being able to be satisfied by it because no knowledge is never enough. And when it crashes at the end of the line, they find themselves empty and oftentimes become atheists and angry, angry at religion, angry at the people who are still believers, unable to see what they've lost because they are so determined that all it ever was was one big deception. And the missionaries who messed them up in the first place, they've moved on to their next target. They aren't there to be spiritual advisors. They were there to recruit and destroy faith. Mission accomplished. 
And this identification religion, okay, it can be a huge problem in more ways than just with these extreme cases. Wanting something to give you an identity other than the one we have been granted in Messiah as disciples, which is a huge honor based on who we were before, right? I know it is for me. But when we seek anything for ourselves apart from that core identity, when we feel the need to change our names and pretend to be Jews or to speak Hiblish, you know, Hebrew and English, just because who we are doesn't feel special or relevant enough, that is a trap. Two of my favorite Bible characters really actually have no lines. <laughs> Apollos and Junia, both named after pagan gods. Both apostles, one male and one female. And these were incredibly common names in the Greco-Roman world. You would think that if anyone would change their names, it, these two would, right? And as they traveled around and, and, you know, no one even can say their names without invoking a false god, right? But them going around with those names and preaching Yahweh and Yeshua... It was like the biggest disrespect to Apollo and Juno imaginable. Every time they spoke, it was like the false gods themselves were rolling over and prostrating themselves before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and especially Apollo, because Apollo was a messenger god. <laughs> oh, the messenger god is proclaiming the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It reads really funny if you were reading it during that time you know <laughs> zeus's zeus's messenger is <laughs> proclaiming yahweh and yeshua ah uh, and the same with us you know when tyler rosenquist in light of who i used to be and do and say and believe goes around proclaiming yeshua and the word of god well it means something because of my former identity not in spite of it god wins Satan loses, but if I take on a fake Hebrew name and pretend to, I, to be something I'm not, man, that witness, it's lost. Anyway, next week we're going to talk about polygamy in the Bible. Fun stuff. See you later.